Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. If you would turn in your Bible to page one, no matter what Bible you have, I believe that you will find that page one in your Bible will begin the first book of Moses, commonly called Genesis. In the Hebrew, uh, this book is called Bereshit, coming from the very first words of the Bible in the beginning. Bereshit uh, is the Hebrew name for the book. And thus we begin again this Shabbat, the instruction of the cycle of the Torah. At this time in congregations all around the world, those of the house of Israel are now turning to the exact same instruction of Moses with us. And we join in the greater assembly of our brethren all throughout the world, turning to receive the instruction of God and following in its cycle. This passage that we have of this teaching is actually several chapters up through chapter 5, and there's no way in the space of this whole evening, if we were to dedicate it, could we possibly cover all the material that is in here. But thank goodness we have the Torah cycle, so each year we come back and we can look at newer things and be refreshed with those that we have learned before. Let me just begin by reading the opening words of the entire Bible to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, we know those words to be Bereshit, Bera, Elohim, Et, Hashamayim, Vayet, Haaretz. And we know that there are seven Hebrew words there, but only six of them get translated. The fourth word in the Hebrew, the word beginning with Aleph and Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, is not translated in our script. And thus, this is the first reference that we will find in the scriptures in which that the Messiah is being introduced to us. It was the Messiah who spoke to John there in Revelation 1 when he walked up to him and he said, I am the Aleph and the Tav. Now, in most of your Bibles, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, this is a Hebrew Messiah talking to a Hebrew prophet, John, and do you really think he spoke to him in Greek? I submit to you, I believe he spoke to him in Hebrew, and thus, if he did, he said, I am the Aleph and Tav, and he answered the age-old question of the sages of Israel, who or what is the Aleph and Tav that is found in the very first verse of Bereshit? Who or what is this Aleph and Tav? And thus, we begin the book with our reminder right from the beginning that the end of our search of trying to understand God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding is ultimately going to lead us to the Messiah. The answer to the question, whether we even realize the question was being asked or not, is the Messiah. And thus we begin the story of how it all began. The interesting thing about Genesis and one of its intrinsic values to us of faith is that it begins to define us as well. We are a people who have a beginning and who have an end. Most people stumble through this life and don't have a beginning or an end. They just suddenly find themselves upon their fleshly existence, they're subject to those things, and they go out of this world with no understanding of where they came from or where they're going. But by reading this book, we begin to learn that God, who is a creator, he's the one who created all things, including us. And in tonight, particular portion, although there are many portions I wish we had the time to go through, I want to emphasize what does it mean when God said that he made us, man, in the image of God? Because there's some very special and significant things that we should take note of. If, if a person can get the sense of their personal identity, if they can get those questions answered, who am I, where did I come from, it goes a long ways toward explaining their behavior uh, in this world and tells them where they're going to be going to in the future. We have a destiny, a spiritual destiny that's been given to us, and we being of the sons of Adam, we being of mankind, we share this destiny that we see our father Adam was given by the Lord right from the creation. 
we could go through and make a giant list in this portion of all the different things that God created. And in the very first chapter, it goes into great detail of the whole creation of, of the earth, the heavens, of uh, the animal kingdom, of uh, birds, of fishes, of the stars, of the days of the week, the creation of time that is in here, the creation of Sabbath, the creation of marriage, all of these things in this first portion, uh, God begins to explain to us how they all came to be. Now, for those of you who have uh, followed along with more of the prophetic message, we also see that in here God is also giving us his great plan that will later be described to us throughout the rest of Scripture. Any time that we find in the Scripture the number seven of anything, we need to stop and take note because it's God's plan. And each of those clues that are given to us in Scripture, I liken them unto the, if you were to get the big jigsaw puzzle out, and you dumped all the pieces out there on the big dining room table, and if you had a mother like my mother was, that you would have been instructed that what you do is turn all the pieces face up, and then you gather all the border pieces first. And you arrange those border pieces in that outline before you try to start putting the other little pictures together. And thus, I liken unto these clues of sevens, the plan of God to like the border pieces of a great big jigsaw puzzle about what our existence is about, what God's plan is about. And thus, we begin with the story of the six days of creation on the seventh. He rested. Let me just read the passage to you very briefly, and I want you to take note of something that will occur repeatedly. Beginning at verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters, which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was an evening, and there was a morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over their, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every kind of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts, and by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth which they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, we could go through that passage and we could try to draw out what were the redundant expressions. Why is it repeated? Because one of the clues of studying the Torah, as I've tried to share with you before, is that any time that Moses repeats himself, you need to stop and take note. There is no idle word in the Scripture. Every word has its own special valued meaning. And in this particular passage, it wasn't there was evening and there was day or morning and there was a day because each day was different, but rather it was God's assessment at the conclusion of each day. He said he saw it and he said it was good. Everything that God made, he said, it's good. None of the earth, no fish, no bird, no animal, no man does not fall under that category that God has made a declaration. It is good. But then it's interesting. There are only three blessings. Although he declares all things to be good, he renders a blessing first upon the living creatures, those which breathe life, breathe air to live, he rendered a blessing upon man, and then he rendered a blessing upon the seventh day. And he sanctified and separated that day. If you were to go through all of the themes of the Bible, one of the things that you will find is, is that living creatures, man, and the seventh day are linked spiritually together. It is living creatures animals that God will use to try to illustrate to man this quality of the substitution of life for life. Unless there be the shedding of blood, there should be no remission of sin. It was of the animals that he had blessed that he slew, took the skin of the animal to cover man, to give him a covering. So there's a linkage that exists there. And obviously you know there's a linkage with regard to the seventh day. And so keeping the seventh day, we recognize God to be the creator. We so recognize God's great plan that he has with mankind, this seven, seven units, seven day, seven years, 7,000 year plan, if you will. It is the passage from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46. And if you would turn with me there very briefly, in which that uh, Isaiah, the prophet, makes reference to what we just read and speaks to us in a very unique way about describing God to us. In Isaiah 46 and in verse 8, the prophet says to us, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressor. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. 
the sages of Israel, upon hearing the prophet Isaiah speak these words, began to ask themselves from verse 10, when did God declare the end to us while telling us the beginning? How did he do that? So they went back to Bereshit, to Genesis 1, and they made this rather amazing discovery. For each day of the creation, there's a corresponding 1,000 years in biblical history. And thus, God not only was he telling us how things came to be, but he was also declaring to us the end at the same time. If we follow that sequence of the first day where he created light and darkness and separated the light from the darkness, Adam, who was the first man there, introduced sin, darkness, into the world. And as you will read in the rest of this portion, Adam had been told that if he ate of that tree of the knowledge, that he would surely die in that day. Adam lived to be 930 years old. He died in that first 1,000-year day. And thus he was the predominant feature of the first day, his life. In the second day, he created waters over the surface of the earth. In the second 1,000 years, the second millennia of biblical history, we have the story of Noah and the flood. The waters came over the surface of the earth. In the third, he brought forth plants yielding seeds. And in the third millennia, we have the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his sons going down into Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, going into the promised land. And Abraham, our father, was promised that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. And in particular, Israel, the meaning, of course, is the planting of the Lord. Thus, we have the story of Abraham to Israel fulfilling the third millennia. On the fourth, he caused lights in the expanse of heaven, showing forth signs and seasons. And the scripture teaches us that the kings of Israel and all of the prophets of Israel are likened to lights in the heavenlies, showing forth signs and seasons of God, his timing, his days, his weeks. In the fifth, we had living creatures come forth, and that's when the Messiah came forth right at that moment to make us new creatures in him. On the sixth, he created man and woman and told them to fill the earth and subdue it. And in the last millennia, the last thousand years that we've had, that's what man and woman have done. We have filled the earth and we have subdued it. In fact, if you were paying attention to the news reports of the last two weeks, well, you know that the world just announced that we now have six billion people in the world. At this moment, we have more people living in the world than has ever lived in the history of the entire world leading up to this generation. There are more people alive today than has ever existed in the earth previous to this generation. So we have truly filled the earth and subdued it in our days. On the 7th, he rested from his labors, and thus we have the story, the beginning of the Sabbath. The rabbis tell the Jewish people, do not worry when the Messiah comes. He comes in the year 6000 at the start of the seventh millennia, and he will rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Thus, when John spoke of that in the book of Revelation, it wasn't such a novel and new idea. It was an understanding that emerged from the teaching of this passage of Scripture from the Torah, of what Isaiah taught. It's the same thing that Peter was trying to instruct us in Second Peter 3 at the close of his letter in trying to explain to us what would it be like at the coming of the Lord. And he emphasized and said, that there will be mockers in those days, and those mockers that will escape their notice that God beforehand has judged the whole world, and they won't understand that God is coming to judge by a great consuming fire this time. And furthermore, he instructs us, but don't let this one fact escape your notice, brethren, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And Peter is drawing us back to this teaching in Bereshit to get us to see the plan. There is a great Sabbath of millennia soon coming. And who is coming back? The Lord of the Sabbath is getting ready to come back. He is the Lord of that day. Uh, that thousand years when he comes to rule and reign. So having 
given us a kind of a preliminary of what this passage is about and the profound elements that come from chapter 1 that drive much of the understanding in the scripture that follows, I want to home in on a little bit of what this passage goes on to tell us about the creation of man. It's said here that man was created on the sixth day, but if you go a little bit further, in fact, if you get into chapter 2, he begins to go through and describe how man is really specifically made, how he places him in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he describes the garden to us, and then he says a most profound thing, and I want you to take note of this, having emphasized that God said everything was good. I want you to take note of chapter 2, verse 18. In the midst of this creation of man, he said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, all other things he had seen, he had said, It is good. But suddenly upon seeing man, man there in the garden, he said, Something's not right. It is not good that man be alone. And thus we have how woman came to be, how God then created woman. The thing I think that we need to emphasize is uh, particularly this, and I think those of us who have been married a number of years, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine my life without my wife. And and for those who, who you, you know what I'm talking about, even with your wives, the idea of being married and having your companion, your soulmate, that person whom you've committed your life with together, you just can't, you, you just know it's better. Now, when you get a wife, it's very, very difficult. Your life will never be the same again. You will never have the freedoms that you had before as a man. Things will not work out to your perfect satisfaction. However, you are left with this very clear fact, it's much better to have the wife. It is better. And God knew it was better, too. And thus, he made those decisions for us. Down to the level of who we pick as our soulmate, our spouse, our wife, with us, is also part of God's plan you know, for our lives. He's involved with this in even to the practical things within this creation. And just as God made a distinction between the Sabbath and the other days, God has made a distinction between man and other created beings. Now, we could get into the philosophy of it or the theology of it or whatever you want, but there's something about that's different about what God did with man that isn't unlike that which he did with the other creatures. He did bless the other creatures. He blessed man. But there was something distinctive that was going on, and obviously what it was is that God said that he made man in his image. It doesn't say he made animals in the image of God or the likeness of God. He said, let us make man in our image. That's a favorite verse of mine when I'm trying to explain to, uh, when I'm trying to, explain to the rabbis and uh, some of our other Jewish brethren who've not come to know the Messiah that uh, God never presents himself as an absolute one. In every reference in Torah from Moses, Moses always describes God in a plural form. Elohim, masculine gender, plural. We should say gods. We say God. Adonai, masculine gender, plural. We should say lords. We say Lord. And every time that God goes to describe himself under Torah and where Moses writes of him, the plural form of God is always expressed, either by direct speech or, as in the case of this, let us make man in our image. Two times the plurality of God is expressed to us. Man is not made in the image of God and angels. Man is not made in the image of God and other created things. Man is made in the likeness and in the image of God. And I will show you another passage that becomes very direct uh, in this portion where it clearly emphasizes the plurality of God. 
It will be later with other evidence as God reveals and manifests himself to us that we'll learn to refer to him as Abba, Father, as we'll learn to refer to him as a son, and as we'll learn to refer to him as the Spirit of the Holy One. But in this particular passage, the stage is set for him to be expressed to us in a clearly plural form. Now, man went into the garden, and right off the bat, the garden instructions are given to him there in chapter 2, and it is explained to him that in the middle of the garden, there are two trees. There's a tree of life, which he may freely eat of, And there's a tree of knowledge in which they specifically instructed not to eat of. Chapter 2, it says, let me start with verse 16. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And this will be the source of the serpent of Satan coming to deceive man. Now, there's two fundamental questions that we need to ask ourselves, and they are asked by the sages with regard to this passage. One is, wasn't this kind of a setup? I mean, you know, man gets put in the garden and then is flat told, you know, like a little kid, don't eat of that. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the test. You know, you take a little kid, you put him in the room, you put a marshmallow on the table, and you say, whatever you do, you can do anything you want in this room, but don't touch that marshmallow. It's a little bit like you have absolutely demanded of them that they have to do it. The average little guy cannot resist. There's something about it that he's been incentivized. There's an inclination. And it seems like the very commandment to abstain has become the very command to do. And isn't God being a little bit unfair here? I mean, God created man. He surely knows the nature and the thinking of man. He breathed life into him. Surely he knows what the man is going to do. And while we may look to have a complaint of God, I believe there's something much more fundamental at stake here that gives reason for all of this. And it comes down to the principle of ownership. You see, the owner of a piece of ground, he's the one who can put restrictions on the ground. He's the one who can specify, you can build here, but you can't build there. You can use this part of the ground, but you can't use that part of the ground. The owner is the one who gets to set any restrictions. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that God owns the earth, even the Garden of Eden, and even Adam, the man. God is God. It's his. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, Psalms 24.1 says to us. We repeat the psalm whenever we dedicate the altar, another ownership symbol of God on the earth. And in the case of the garden, this one tree of the knowledge, the tree of knowledge, apparently was God's ownership symbol. All of the other stuff could be used by man freely at his choosing, but this one tree clearly indicated that man didn't own the place. There were restrictions. They're not harmful to him. They don't hurt him. And once you understand the principle of ownership, you say it is a right and true thing for the owner to specify the restriction. And that man indulging in that restriction is an offense. It's a theft. It's stealing. He's trying to take the ownership away, the ownership right of the one who owns the garden. And that is the reason why the serpent came to beguile the woman. It was his real intent to steal. To steal the earth and that which belonged to God from him. And he uses deceit for this purpose. He entraps the woman into what has God said and brings confusion and deception to her in an effort to steal that which belongs to God. It is pretty clear as we look through the whole of the scripture that Satan is trying to do one of two things with man, man that belongs to God. Because God has decided to make mankind to be his bride, 
of all of the creation that God has made, he has decided to choose man, who's a little lower than the angels, to be his bride and to dwell with him into eternity. The enemy wants to do one of two things. He can't defeat God. He cannot come against him. He can never defeat God. But what he can do is he can try to harm something that God loves. And if you have an enemy who's trying to hurt you and you know he can't hurt you, he's going to try to hurt something that you love. He's going to try to destroy something that belongs to you. And in this case, Satan is trying to do one of two things, either outright kill or prostitute us to such an extent that even God rejects us. And that's clearly what his tactics are here. And thus he begins this interesting dialogue which has huge, profound spiritual implications even to this day of how we approach and come to terms with God's word. The serpent begins chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, meaning deceitful, which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Well, of course he didn't say that. He said, of one tree you may not eat in the garden. His restriction is only upon one, not on all the others. But he comes to twist what God has said, and hence and alludes to, well, God said you can't have any of the trees. Well, immediately, if the enemy comes to say that to you, you want to correct them. You want to correct that speech. You want to speak truth. So the woman begins to answer and says, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. There's an error there. Did you see it? There were two trees in the middle. It's only one of the trees in the middle they cannot eat of. But somehow or another she's gotten it confused, and she says, The tree in the middle... Which tree? The one of life or the one of knowledge? She's not being clear. She has not repeated what the Lord has said. She's repeated her thinking of what she thought the Lord said. The enemy is going to exploit it. The enemy will do that to you. If you do not repeat what the Lord has said, if you give your synthesis of it, if you give your opinion of it, Satan is going to have a field day with you. And he's going to further twist your words and twist you as a result in his plan of deceit. And the serpent said, you shall not die. The commentary that goes on to that is that there was a sense of truth to this that man had a sense of that God was full of mercy at that point. And it seemed preposterous that God who had just created us, who loved us, had just blessed us, breathed life into us, how could he summarily take it all away? When it's clearly his purpose for life. So the enemy is exploiting this within the man and saying, you'll not die. He won't do that. He won't judge you. He's, he's trying to give you life. Surely he would not do that. There's a further part of the argument. He goes on to explain, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, that's true. That's true. It later is borne out for us. Look at verse 22 of that same chapter. This is God now realizing man has eaten of that tree. And he says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Man has become like one of us. He's become like God. Knowing good and evil now, lest he stretches his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. That's the part that was true. By eating of the tree of knowledge, we became not like all of God. We became like one of God. Did you see that? See that in verse 22? How can you become one of God 
one of us. How can you become the singular of a plural group? What was it that happened to us that made us like God? And by the way, when you think of God in the plural form, which one is it we're like? Which one of God are we like as a result of this? Is it the Father? Are we like the Father? Are we like the Son? Or are we like the Spirit of the Holy One? Which, which one did we become like as a result of this? I think the obvious answer is we became like the Son. We became a manifested form of God. Now do you see why it was so essential that the Son be the one who comes back to do the repair work? To do the restoral of us? Because we became like the Son. We didn't give birth, but we were sons of God. And as a result, it caused great trouble to us. Because unlike having the skill and the knowledge of God to know how to separate good from evil and to know how to deal with us properly and still remain and keep ourselves holy, we don't have that capability. And so with the knowledge of good and evil, we don't know how to guide ourselves. And by the way, which path do we take? Evil. We make decisions and we create with the spoken mouth and we take the path the wrong way. And thus we bring death upon ourselves. There is one teaching, I don't necessarily favor this teaching, but I want to share it with you because it is somewhat intriguing, that when man, Adam, saw his wife bring the fruit, he knew that what she had done was going to be bring harm. She knew that what she had done was not right that it was contrary to what God had said. And one argument of the teaching is, is that, that man at that moment made a decision. Shall I love God more than my wife or shall I love my wife more than God? And some could argue that at that moment that was a great mistake made by Adam, that he chose to love his wife more than God. He chose the, the physical, the immediate there right before him rather than the eternal, which was the real source of life. Instead, he wanted the immediate pleasure of life rather than eternal life. Well, there's an argument that could be made for that. The other one that I wanted to share with you that I find intriguing, and I'm still not made up my mind as to whether or not it's really that valid, but it's good sometimes to review some of the contrasting thoughts to dig deeper into it, to try to understand the essence of it. One argument is, is that Adam, like Satan, he had really fallen for that basic thing, that Satan had said, now God breathed life into you, he created you, he made in, in his image, surely he would not be opposed to his own image. Therefore, the argument is made that Adam clearly agreed to join with his wife in that under the belief that God would not destroy them, that God would find some way to repair it. He wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but he believed in God's restoral, his ability to, re to redeem and repair. Now, it's intriguing, and it certainly is conducive with what we see has happened later on, but I don't know that Adam was that smart. I have a little struggle with that myself. In fact, I tend to see Adam pretty much about as intelligent as the average guy walking around today. And the average guy walking around today is basically stumbling through the spiritual world flat ignorant of its existence and has flat forgotten the promises of God. And I, I tend to favor that Adam, our father of all flesh, was more like that than he was a great Torah scholar and understood that God's plan of redemption now, the fact that God does have a plan of redemption and does have a way to bring a second Adam forth to restore becomes apparent after these events rather than before. Now, if we get past that particular part with regard to how Adam and Eve fell, I now want to kind of conclude here a little bit and talk about a part that usually doesn't get discussed in this passage which I find rather intriguing. And it also presents theological problems for us from the beginning. 
it begins in chapter 4, after man has fallen. One of the things that happened to Adam was he got kicked out of the garden, and a pronouncement was made upon him, a curse was pronounced, verse 17 of chapter 3, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Remember that he, God had blessed all things. He had blessed all of the creation, but then he pronounced a curse on the ground because of what Adam did. Now, the connection may be because the fruit was a product of the ground through the tree, and as a result of disobeying God with that particular fruit, he brought a curse upon the ground, you know, to it. And that probably, that simple understanding is probably pretty close to the truth somewhere there. In any case, he's walking upon cursed ground now. And Adam and Eve now begin to have children. Begin with me now, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. The name Cain is the means in the Hebrew, it means acquisition, the acquiring of. And when she said, I have gotten, I have gotten a man-child, I have acquired a man-child. And thus she named him Cain. I have acquired. I want you to take note that Eve named Cain. This is the same person who fell to the deception in the garden. Now she names this man Cain. Cain proceeds to go out, and then there is a brother. Verse 2, again, she gave birth to her brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. What does Abel mean? Vanity. Vanity. Very interesting names we have here. And I believe that in the understanding of their names, it will explain their behavior. Because as I've shared with you before, a name will tell you something of your destiny. So we have a man named Acquisition, who is now the brother of another man named Vanity. They're both named by their mother, the same mother who made the mistake of the deception in the garden. It doesn't say that Adam participated in the naming of them. She did. And they proceed to go forth. One, Cain is a tiller of the ground. You remember the ground was cursed, but the animals are still blessed. And Abel is the keeper of flocks. Do you see the parallel beginning to set up? One has been cursed by God and one has been blessed by God. We have one man who's working in the curse and one man who's working in the blessing. Albeit his name is Vanity, he's still in the blessing. They come and they present offerings before the Lord. Let me read that portion to you. So it came in the course of time, this is verse 3 of chapter 4, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the curse. And Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. What's the difference between the two offerings? One is the common item. The other is the best part. Abel didn't pick just any of his flock. The firstlings of the flock, the firstborn of his flock, and the fatlings, the big, you know, healthy ones. Those are the ones that he brought before the Lord. But what did, what did uh, Cain bring before the Lord? Dust of the earth. Dirt. Oh, mind you, it's in a grain form, but still dirt. Cursed dirt. And for some reason, God said, I prefer the blessing to the curse. I prefer the firstlings and the fatlings. I prefer the best part to that other part. By the way, God's not too much unlike us. That's the way we prefer things. I'd rather have brand new than used, if you don't mind. I mean, if I got a choice, I'll take the best one. So God picks the best part. He prefers it. 
Where did we get that nature from? Maybe we're made in his image, in his likeness, huh, maybe? As a result, Cain, he's a little disappointed. Like, you know, God's not treating me fair. You know, my brother, his stuff is accepted, but mine's not. First lesson about the character of God. God's not fair. God prefers one part over the other. God prefers the holy over the profane. He has this in his nature. He prefers that which is living versus that which is dead. He's the God of the living. Quite honestly, if God was fair, brethren, we'd all be dead. Because we all deserve to die. Thank goodness God's not fair. He's just just and full of mercy. He's those characters. He's righteous as opposed to being fair. And that fairness doctrine comes from Cain. It comes from the issue of I want to acquire much. And what I need is I need a fair playing field so I can go out and acquire much. I'll tell you today, when a man is eat up with ambition, the only thing that really gets him upset is if the world's not fair. If I can get it as a fair playing field, then I'll go out. Then I'll get what I can get and get more if I can get away with it. I'll acquire everything and I get. We'll keep everybody under the fairness doctrine here. Those that acquire. Now, Abel is vain. You know, he, he really isn't into acquisition. He's just, he just, he's kind of shallow. He can't figure out what really is going on. He's just stumble bumbling through this thing. And as the story goes, when the Lord sees Cain's disposition, he says to him, he says, Cain, he says, what, what, what are you so angry about? Think about it, Cain. If you'll do well, it will go well with you. In your own doctrine of fairness, in your own doctrine of acquisition, Cain, if you do well, then well will come to you. But if you don't do well, then well doesn't come to you, remember? And you didn't do so well, did you? Oh, I was trying to pass it off as well. I know you were, but it wasn't. And if you'll do well, then your countenance will be lifted. You'll be all right. Well, Cain decides, I need to go take my dispute to another man. Can't get satisfaction with God, so let's go complain to another guy. And he goes to Abel to complain about this, vain Abel. He listens to him, and he's too stupid to figure out what's about to happen here. And he says, well, you know, God's right. <laughs> you know, you're wrong. And Cain gets angry and slays him because Abel wouldn't agree with him. I want other men to agree with me against God. I don't know how I'm going to get God to agree to that, but somehow that's what I want to do. In my eat up going and acquiring all that I want to acquire, I'll just get men to agree with me, even though it's in dispute with God. You know later on that the scripture will speak of the error and the way of Cain. There are men who go the way of Cain. It doesn't mean that specifically that they are, that they're murderers like him. Oh, well, yeah, kind of they are in the end when they go and they hate their brethren. But what he's really talking about there is the heir of those that are eat up with ambition to acquire all that they possibly can get, all the material gain they can get. That is the way of Cain. It's based on deception, not on truth. It's not based on pleasing God. It's placed on getting past God, getting on to your own thing, the way of Cain. Abel dies, and as you know, God approaches him and he says, where's your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? And then he says, the ground is crying out with the blood of your brother. You remember the ground, the cursed ground? He says, the ground is now crying out against you. I want you to take note of, of verse 11, chapter 4. And now you are cursed from the ground. See, the ground got cursed because of his father, Adam. And now the ground has reached up to curse Cain. The curse didn't end there. It's kept going and has found its way into the sun through the ground because of Cain's behavior. So the curse is now reached. And it goes on to describe a very short genealogy of Cain and of his descendants, but that will be the end of it because his name will be cut off in the end. Life will be ending for him. Death will be coming to Cain. 
And then if you go over further now to chapter 5 and at verse 1, having gone through the story of Cain, we now have Cain alive and we have Adam and Eve alive. Abel has died. And then it begins chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. We remember that part. Remember, that was back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Adam was made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. He named him Adam, which means Adam, means man. He called him Adam, man. In that day, they were blessed, male and female. This is the same verses, these are the same principles that we covered earlier. But then he says this, verse 3, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now it doesn't say that Cain or Abel was made in the likeness and in the image of Adam. It says Seth was. Something's happening here. Something's different about this third son, Seth. What does Seth mean? Foundation. The first was acquisition. The second was vanity. But this third son is now called foundation. He is going to be the foundation of something different. Something's going to come forth from this foundation that will be about life. Something special is going to happen from here. Something will be built upon this. And the first thing I want you to take note of is that we know that Adam was made in the likeness and the image of God. And here it says Seth is now made in the image and likeness of Adam. And Adam participated in the naming of Seth. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. If you look up there earlier, you'll also know that she, Eve, called Seth also. Verse 26. Let me back up another verse. Adam had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. She names him Seth, but now Adam also names him Seth with her. Whereas before they were named by the wife without Adam's presence, now this son is named by both. The reunification between the man and the woman are now becoming complete as a result of the birth of Seth. And it's this, this man and his bride coming back together again that is a foundational thing that's going to be working for us in the future. You know, of course, the scripture that teaches us that in the marriage there's a great mystery. Because when every man marries a woman, he is showing forth the same typology, the same symbology of the Messiah being reconciled with his bride in the world. That in every marriage is the mystery of the Messiah and his bride, the church. And we see this pictured for us here. Adam and Eve get it together in the naming of Seth. And he becomes a foundation. And it says of Seth, and the son that was born to him, verse 26, to, and to Seth and to him also a son was born, he called his name Enosh. These men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They're the ones who begin to return to the Lord. They go forth. Not Cain and Abel. They made altars and they did religious ritual, if you will. And they did this sort of practice, but they weren't coming back to the Lord. But it says of Seth and his son, they began to call upon the Lord and call and ask upon his name. And so it says it begins the legacy throughout the rest of this portion of the sons and the genealogy that comes forth from Seth. And we know ultimately the Messiah will come forth from this genealogy from Seth you know, for us. Now, there's many things that we could probably draw out of this, but there's just a couple that I want to summarize for our Torah portion. In particular, 
I want to draw attention to them as we begin the Torah cycle again. In this world that we live, as a result of all the, that has happened over the ages, some of us, in our approach to understanding God and walking before God, basically we get caught up in, if you will, the ritual. We get caught up in the rote routine. You know, God's here, I'm here, boom, we're just moving along. Oh, it's an altar, okay, bring the sacrifice, boom, okay, fine. It's over and done with, press on. And we know that's not truth. We know that's not right. The thing that used to frustrate me uh, when I was growing up and when I attended uh, a small church in my youth, I, for somehow or another, I used to be able to look out to the audience of the folks who had been there for years. They had been there as a young couple. They had gotten married in that church. They had raised children. They were there. They were older. They were grandparents. They were still in the same pew in the same church. Oh, mind you, the building had been rebuilt, but they were still sitting in the same pew. And they were not one bit different, them having lived and been in that church for 30, 40 years, as they were the first day they walked in. There's no life. There's no growth. Oh, there's more experience of hauling sacrifices in. But inside of them, the, the person, the person, the essence of them walking and getting to know God, we're not making a lot of progress here. We're only primarily in the business of acquiring things the way of Cain and a lot of vanity the way of Abel. But there's very few that are like Seth who really call upon the name of the Lord. And when I say call upon the name of the Lord, I'm talking about, as we will later find out here in the next few Torah portions, of like Abraham, the man who was called the friend of God, whom would call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord would answer. He would say, oh Lord, hear my prayer. And the Lord would say, here I am, Abram. And one of the things that I've shared with you before is that there is a, usually a reason why we don't hear God answer us when we call upon the name of the Lord. That's primarily because God calls upon us and we don't answer. We would rather go with the rote routine. We would rather go the way of acquiring things and vanity than to set a sure foundation in our hearts of faith and go the way of Seth and call upon the name of the Lord. Quite honestly, if you call upon the name of the Lord and the Lord doesn't answer you, what good is your faith? What are you coming here for? You know, I can think of a whole lot more productive things for you to do if your manner of life is vanity and going and acquiring things. This place would be a waste of time. Some people come to the assembly for the purpose of appeasing their souls. Some people want to be around people who believe they don't want to spend the effort believing, but they like to be around people who do believe. I don't know what it is. It's some sort of a, a game they're playing in which that they think that they too will acquire eternal life if they're hanging around with people who have eternal life. It's some sort of vain deceit that says that if I can just hang around with the people who believe, somehow I'll get the benefits of them. But a sure foundation of faith, that which follows after Seth, requires you personally, like it said of Seth and his son, to call upon the name of the Lord. You call upon the name of the Lord. And you establish faith in God. And your name gets recorded along with everyone else's name that is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is written there too. You're not just one of the masses. You're someone. And by so doing, you become someone who has a beginning and who has an end. You have a purpose. And there's a quality that begins to emerge within that you recognize. Not a quality that you've tried to acquire yourself or vainly went after as other men, but a quality that comes from God. A quality in which that you recognize that you're made in the image and the likeness of God. That God in your life is what puts the quality in your life. You can't artificially put it in. You can't breathe life into yourself. God can breathe life into you. You can't make yourself like unto yourself. But you can be made in the image of God. And by so taking on those characteristics, 
beginning with those principles and definitions of who we are, you can then begin on a long path that leads to life and eventual restoration with God. If you jump off that and you try to go your own way, the way of Cain, the way of Abel, you'll not make it. To a certain extent, Abel was really kind of innocent, but his way was not the way back to God either. He was innocent in terms of the way Cain, his brother, treated him, but the fact is his way didn't get him back, nor did Cain's way get him back. But Seth's way is a different way. It is one in which that he identifies with his father. Seth was in the likeness and the image of someone before him. And that someone was Adam, the first man, who was made in the likeness and the image of God. And only by finding our path back through those patriarchs, those fathers, back to that place, will we see where did we originally begin. And if we can get that straight, then it's a simple matter of correcting what should be. And we know what the correction is. Be restored to God. To get the issue between us and God resolved that was caused by our Father and be part of that restoration and that repair. And that's where the Messiah obviously comes in. As a result of Adam and Eve becoming like one of God, that one of God had to come back and do a great repair work. Basically, the repair work was not to finish us, to turn us into God's, it was to repair us and make us back to be the man that God made us to be. And let God be God. And let man be man. Because our great mistake was we tried to become like God. If you look at the sins of men today, that's where they all source back to. They all source back to lust, just like Eve saw, saw that the fruit was good to eat and had an appetite for it, saw that it was delectable and sparkly to her eyes, the lust of her eyes, and thought that she could become wise as a result of it, the pride of life. We're all, we're all coming from that problem. And as a result, we need the same solution. We get the same problem, we need the same solution. But it's not the way of Cain or of Abel. It's the sure foundation that is laid forth by Seth in the likeness of Adam, in his image, one in which that they call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? Now, as we begin our Torah study this cycle of this year, one of the things that I would uh, invite you and ask you to do as we go through each portion is that the Torah, particularly the book of Genesis, is going to be taking us back to our fathers to learn the lessons of how our fathers' relationships with God began and what, how God manifested himself through our fathers in those relationships. They're our fathers. He is our God. We are the descendants of those same fathers. Those promises that were made to our fathers are made to us. It's said to you and to your descendants. And we need to begin to clearly identify, not only with the God who was the creator, but with the fathers whom he dealt with. Thus, we will begin to learn the characteristics of our God. And thus, I would hope that we would be able to repeat what God said, not our synthesis of what we think he said. If we don't study Torah, we have to come up with our own opinions as to what we think God said. And that's fundamentally one of our greatest mistakes that we make. And it's the reason why we get led into much consternation and confusion. Because we keep referring to, well, we're not supposed to eat of the tree in the middle, and we forgot there's two trees. And all kinds of other mistakes, you know, that follow suit. Amen? As we concluded our, our tour and we said, strength, strength, let us be strengthened, so... We ask God now to strengthen us again and lead us in the way of truth and righteousness. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this uh, Shabbat. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for our father, Adam. Thank you for our mother, Eve. Thank you, God, that you created them in your image and likeness. Thank you, Lord, that we have descended from them and that we know where our beginning is, who our original father is. And, Lord, we desire, like his son, Seth, to be like in the image of our father, not only not stopping with Adam, but to be truly in the image of our heavenly father, who created even he. Lord, we'd ask that you'd use the Torah to instruct us, to show us your ways. And Lord, we confess to you, we are a people who are caught up in the acquiring of things. We are a people who are caught up in the vanity of this world. And we need to stop from those ways and get back to a sure foundation in you. So Lord, we would ask that the instruction of the Torah would move us and lead us in that way. Lord, we also ask for tender mercies and loving kindness in the days that we live. We see all about us, Lord, things are beginning to happen. Earthquakes as we've never seen them before. Many signs of trauma and difficulty and darkness coming in the days ahead. We ask God that you continue to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand your great plan. Because God, we want to be found in your plan when you return. We want to be those people, O oh God, when you come back and say, will I find faith? Will I find those believing in the promises of God? We want to be those people, Lord, that would answer and say, here I am, Lord. I believe in your promises. I believe in your promise of eternal life. I believe in your promise of a kingdom. I believe in all your promises. I'm ready and waiting to go that sure way, the way of life. So, Lord, we ask that you would bless this assembly. Lord, we ask that you'd bless even the, the brethren who are sharing the assembly with us. All of your brethren that we are co-laboring with in these days, Lord. We ask that you look down with loving kindness and tender mercies and help us, O oh God. We are an ignorant people of you. But we confess it to you, Lord, and we ask, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and understanding of who you are so that we might be your people. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.